0: Yeah,
1: You know what that means.
0: We made a wrong term at uh, Albuquerque. Albuquerque. It's happened again. Where where are we? We are somewhere beyond the Bermuda
1: Triangle. Where exactly will be revealed with a little sonic clue? So, yes. We are once again out of the safe harbors of Yacht Rock. Or are we? Well... I guess that is the question. I don't think so. There's three songs here
0: certified. So Yep,
1: and it's got Personnel Galore, which mm-hmm. we'll get into. Now, if you would have told me five years ago that anything from Michael Jackson was considered yacht rock, I'd be like, what? Much less essential. Essential, right. Yeah. In multiple songs. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, it is what it is. We don't make the rules, we just <laughs> sort of abide by them. Yeah, occasionally. <laughs> occasionally. Um, yeah, but so we thought uh, in uh, honor of Halloween, we'd do a very special episode of the Yacht Rock podcast. Out of the main, we would explore the classic album, Thriller.
0: Yes, I guess that's somewhat predictable, even though we only thought of it like a week and a half ago. <laughs> it seemed <laughs> that would be the low-hanging low, uh, fruit. But So, yeah, Thriller, I mean, iconic album of the 80s. Is there a more iconic album? That's, I guess, another uh, debate, but. Of all time. I, uh, yeah, boy, there's so many things that historically changed at that moment, you know, including the MTV aspect of it, that when we look back at it now, it's just, it almost feels overwhelming to talk about it in great detail because there's so much yeah but there's also so much that's already been written we want to try not to just regurgitate all of that correct and did you hear though
1: they're making a documentary uh to yeah. honor
0: the 40th year yeah is that about the, the making of the album not the video
1: it's making of the album but- so i would presume yeah. that's going to include some yacht rock goodies in there with a Picaro, yeah. a Page, a Lucather, et etc. I would think so. There's a lot of stories they have to tell. Mm. Can I just, since we're on this topic of personnel and going back to is this Yacht Rock or is it not Yacht Rock? All right. I'm just going to run through the names as fast as I can. Michael Boddicker, Paulino da Costa, David Foster, Umberto Gatika, is that how you say that? Yeah. The uh, I'll just call them the Jerry Horn guys. Um, James Ingram. Uh, Paul Jackson Jr., Lewis Johnson on base. Of course, Quincy producing, which we'll get to. Steve Lukather, uh, David Page, Dean Parks, Greg Filligan Jeff Picaro, Steve Picaro, pickle pecker, pickle pecker, Picaros, Rod Temperton, uh, and we could go on and on and on, but we will. So, but I mean, you look at that going back to now that we know what Yacht Rock is. One of the things being personnel, it's like you look at that on paper and you're like. Pure yacht. yeah it's
0: it's obvious all right well let's, let's break it down by the this is the uh, by the number segment so 19 okay. 19- to us
1: by uh rubik's cube okay all right <laughs> uh
0: 1982 epic records took just under six months to make from start to finish seven of the nine songs were singles only baby be mine and lady of my life were not though they did both get significant airplay Three of these songs have been yachtskied, which we can cover when we get to them. Uh, by the end of 1983, they had already sold 32 million copies. It's now, that number is over 70 million. It broke records for Grammys by winning eight one year. Um, won a bunch of American Music Awards as well. And I would say, for me, it's sort of, this becomes a jumping off point for We Are the World that we cover, oh, yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, true. Uh, there were... 30 songs overall that were part of the overall pool for hmm. recording that they ended up picking these nine from. And here's an interesting number. Apparently, there's a rumor that fans thought the UPC code on the record was Michael Jackson's home phone number and <laughs> started okay. calling it. Apparently, it led to some hair studio in Washington. Uh, as in the state of Washington, um, oh and they were getting like 50 plus phone calls per day. So that's the final number: 50 phone calls per
1: day. Wow, interesting.
0: <laughs> that is, now, would that be more or less phone calls than eight six seven five three zero nine received? Uh, probably less. Yeah, probably I would less. guess. Okay, you know this just How about seven seven
1: seven ninety three eleven. That probably had a far fewer. In Minneapolis, I probably had a lot. All right. Uh, Going back to Thriller, we are going to go back to that, right? So this was just for my own personal like, contextual. This was the first album I ever bought. That Mm. was my own money and said, this is my album. Um, At the time, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. But do you remember, until I went back and kind of read up on it, I had forgotten that – The Girl Is Mine was the first single off here. Yeah,
0: I was going to mention that because I was very slow to warm to this album because that song. When that came out and that represented the launch of this album, I didn't like it at all. Me neither. So therefore, I was slow to accept anything else on this album.
1: Yeah. But once Billie Jean came out, Mm -hmm. then that hooked me. I had to have the album, and then I remember just listening to this over and over and over again, and it was just... It was like life changing for me at the time. Because now I was like, I get to choose my own music. And this launched a whole nother interesting era of music that was in, you know, related to this genre, but that whole like MTV era that, that we talked about. But now we're listening to it and discovering it through an entirely different lens.
0: Discovering it through the yacht rock lens, knowing who these players are that are on it, knowing some of the other shifting things that were happening around it, era wise, as well as in
1: California, West Coast music. It's almost like learning it all new again for me for me it totally was because i was 12 years old appreciating the hooks yeah right and stuff and i was you know getting into the grooves but i had no idea anything about music that what little i know now i did not know then but now i'm listening to it for one did you listen to it when you did your little study did you listen to it in headphones yes oh my god is that an experience made all the difference in the world i don't think i (laughs) ever really
0: had at least not in a Uh, a listening where i'm paying attention you know i I may have had it on or songs come on when you're running or whatever but to actually sit down and listen with my best set of headphones on yes and i have some actual observations that i only noticed
1: because of the headphones me too um but that would be my recommendation i don't care how many times you've heard this album if you haven't heard it with headphones on right you haven't heard it yet right which i just i know you're going to get into the specific things but i wanted to Draw a correlation again back to Yacht Rock. When we talked about the album Asia, Steely Dan, Mm -hmm. we talked about the brilliance of the recording and engineering in part being all the space that you can sort of hear and not hear, the differentiation between sounds and instruments, and nothing felt like it was overwhelming you. And I got that exact same impression listening to this album on phones.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot more going on on this album, but I don't think it sounds cluttered. No. I mean, especially... When in the headphones and you hear left and right, it's a lot easier for you to pick out all the different little ditty things that Michael's doing vocally. Correct, and he's filling a lot of space with that. But they're all, again, it's that use of like tiny little things that we like to call ear candy or whatever. There's nothing big and overwhelming taking over. It's just little things that sort of prick your ear and you know, and then move away. And
1: like you said, a lot of options to consider. You know, audibly or. What's the word I'm looking for? Huh? Sound wise, yeah, yeah, because there's little like little accents here and there. And I was going to ask you just real quick because I'm interested, but you know, as a mixer, when you're mixing things, you can pan things all the way to the left, you can pan things all the way to the right, and there's a full spectrum all the way in between. Mm-hmm. And you've told me that certain guys or gals who are are mixers are either a center, left, or right guy. It, right. It's, Did you hear any of that as Quincy? I wouldn't imagine he would be that kind of guy, but I heard things so hard to the left, it's so hard to the right going on at the same time, and they're playing off each other, and it's like, whoa. Yeah, there's two schools of thought
0: in mixing as it pertains to panning and stereo. There are mixers, um, I think it's Chris Lord-Elge, Alge, is the guy who's really known as a center-left-right mixer, meaning that anything gets panned either straight up center or hard left or hard right. He's not dealing with like... The ten o'clock, two o'clock, in between areas. He doesn't think that there's any value there. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants his mixes to sound wide. Um, whereas other people say, well, you know, if you're in a room with a band playing or an orchestra, there's all there's there is all that range in between. The reality of listening to music in a live environment is that some of it comes at you from the middle, some of it comes from the wide areas, and some comes from in between. So it's two different approaches. I think in this Quincy. In this mix, I hear the whole spectrum
1: being used. I don't hear just left, right, center. Yeah. But you definitely hear the wideness of it, don't you? Yes. He definitely explores the poles, for sure. And a lot of that is, again, we'll
0: probably hit on it, Michael's vocals. Because he puts so many layers in that that allows him to explore these wide-out areas. If you're going to have one guitar part, and it's going to be doing a lot of work in the song, to put it all the way left or all the way right really makes the mix then lean heavy to that side. So it's more the little nuanced
1: things that you like to spread really wide. Yep. Well, and then the other thing, this last thing I had just as an overall observation, uh, which again, we'll hear examples of, but um, going back to through the prism of yacht rock this album so we've got all that personnel i mentioned and those are all musicians but we've also got a time in 1982 where the yacht's about to sink
0: mm-hmm. and people
1: are exploring all this new technology synths drum programming what i thought was really interesting because we've talked so many times about how quincy wanted this record to be on every radio format up and down the dial mm-hmm. is how he blends all that stuff so you've got some stuff that sounds super techno for lack of a better word and then you've got tracks that sound completely organic and then you've got a, a whole melange of certain songs which we'll get to in a bit like and you- then there's the undeniable
0: mtv aspect of it right that there were songs that were written and recorded specifically
1: with what we we're going to do with the video in mind Oh, of course yeah we mentioned the uh canary in the coal mine being they're recording this record. Quincy was trying to get Michael to focus on recording the record. He's outside in the booth practicing the dance steps that he's going to choreograph the music video to. Specifically like, for Billy Jean yeah. is the main one. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yep. So he was thinking visually back then. Well, should we uh Can I say dive, dive, in, in, dive in, in again geez. Oh, wait, is the bell broken? Check how about the bell. set sail. Ooh, set uh, sail. Uh, right. I got it well, working. Okay. Good. All right, I don't know how much we'll need that bell, but let's see. So, uh track 1 they started something with "Wanna Be Starting Something." Yeah, and you said that it was what uh, Billy Jean that grabbed you and brought you into this album. Yes,
0: yeah. For me, yeah. it was "Wanna Be Starting Something." When I heard this groove when I heard that. I was so like, "Wow, what is that?" And suddenly. I decided, well,
1: maybe I need to give a little more attention to this record. And so this was the song that hooked me. I thought it was interesting. Now, obviously, when the song is, was titled Want to Be Starting Something, it lends itself to being the opening track. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that they chose this song to lead the album off because of so much synth heavy program sound, and it kind of belies what the rest of the record holds. But, and it's sort of a repetitive groove, but you really dug on it. What was so different that you thought was so unique?
0: Um, I think I like the syncopation of the groove. It's something that was so different at Mm. the time. Um, the, I never really noticed it back then because of the way it's produced and layered and arranged, but it's really like you just said, it's one groove through the whole song. Right. And they bring in different layers and they have different melodic things happening on top, but really it's that
1: one basic groove from top to bottom. Uh, program drums you know what's interesting itch- 'cause because you have so much like program stuff in there had I not really ever thought about you know what was going on I think I may have been tempted to presume that the horns were synth horns mm. because this is 1982 remember when the synths were coming out the, the best sounding samples were either horns or like strings yeah so like these stuff. horns mm-hmm. are so tight yeah. we talked about it with the Jerry Hay yeah. beast mode episode they are so tight that like how are humans doing that I know Without editing software.
0: Speaking of tight, it's uh, the guitar player too. So this brought a new name to my attention. This guitar player, David Williams, and he plays that palm muted plicky thing uh throughout. Left but, ear, by the way. Left ear. Mm-hmm. Well, look, we'll come back to Dave in a minute and I'll tell you what his credits are. But as you pointed it out, left ear intro, one of the things that I caught on headphones that I never noticed before. Put your headphones on, people. Mm -hmm. Listen to Michael doubling the guitar part in the left ear during the intro.
1: Yeah, so... Um, Can I add one little thing before you talk about David Williams? Okay. Can we fast forward to three minutes, 25 seconds? Because then David Williams decides to harmonize that left ear guitar part, and he, then he harmonizes the palm mutes the whole rest of the way. So, ah. 325, listen to your left ear again. your candy
0: okay so david williams Surprise, he hasn't turned up more so he'd played with um or at least we haven't noticed his name before earth wind and fire uh Baz skaggs uh, obviously michael jackson madonna brian ferry roxy music he was also part of the backup band for the temptations uh and here's <laughs> he's inducted into the guinness world book of records for being the guitarist on the most number one hit records in the world
1: What? And yet, his name is new to us here today. It was new to me. Yeah. And again, I used to stare at these liner notes. I didn't care about David Williams or anyone back then, but I used to stare at these liner notes 24-7. Two things I heard or I read, did not hear. Uh, They got Lewis Johnson credited with the bass. Have you ever heard real bass in
0: that? No, um, but I'm going to steal your
1: saying. Put a pin in that. Okay. For later. All right, that's going to hurt. The other Uh, thing is... um, can we do the little? Uh, just give us a little of the "Mama Say, Mama Sigh" with the horn section in it that we talked about with the jury. Thing. Now, yeah. Do you hear James Ingram in there? Well, specifically, no. <laughs> Me neither. But he's
0: credited as backup vocals. So, yeah. Did you know that Michael got sued for that section of the song?
1: No way. Yeah. Apparently,
0: well, they reached an out-of-court settlement. It was. Um, Apparently, it was lifted very closely from a song uh, by, let's see, this musician's name is Manu Dibango, D I B A N G O, a song called Soul Makasa, 1972. And it was sung in the uh, Cameroonian language called Douala. And so the Mama Say Mama Makusa was some sort of variation on that, close enough that he brought the lawsuit against Michael and they settled out of court.
1: I think that translates loosely to: Does your mama know how to say moccasins? Wow! Uh, fun fact: Put the a pin in that. Is, as the well. answer is yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's track one. So yep. to me, it's like, all right, they've established an interesting tone. Yep. Again, going back to Asia, they've established that this is going to be very clean, pristine recording with lots of space, lots of ear candy, uh, but mostly so far, what I again I would call electronics. style yes, of very Production. Much. And then they move on to track two, which is the certified, Yacht Rock certified, Baby Be Mine. Yep. 89.0
0: on the scale. Very, very high rating. Just below Essential, right? Is
1: Essential 90 and above, I think? I think it's 85. I'm not an expert, as you may know. But I I believe it is Essential.
0: But let's, since we're going to start on this one, just listen to this opening drum fill. Because... Listen to the sound of the drums, and then when the groove kicks in, they're entirely different sound, which makes me think this was a live drum fill lifted from somewhere else, edited to the front of this, because all the rest is drum machine. Here we go. So they do credit Ndugu Chancellor as drums, so he probably played that fill somewhere, and
1: they just pasted it on. That, I don't know that, but that's what I'm wondering what it if you like. did a whole track and they just muted it from that point on now or that's something. that's possible too. Because that's what I heard. I'm like, "Oh, they're introducing real drums now. It doesn't for the track feel like too. it goes with it though. It feels no. like
0: kind of it's a weird sort of meter to that fill. <laughs>
1: it is kind of now that you say that. Yeah. Oh, let's hear it again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then you get that real like um real synthy bass. Yeah, so
0: who do we think they've
1: got um, three people credited
0: as synth on this song. None that say specifically synth bass. But do we think that's Page, Filling Gaines, or Boddicker? I'm going to guess Page only because of we talked about his prowess on synth bass. But Filling Gaines is no slouch in that area either. I
1: know. I would have reflectively two months ago said Filling Gains. Yeah. But after seeing the whole thing about Turn Your Love Around with Page playing it on the mini-move, right? Yeah. Um, now I'm inclined to say Page as well. Yeah. Has a lot of that same character, I think. Now, going back to Yacht Rock, if we, you've heard of Yacht Rock, right? Uh, There's podcasts galore on this topic. Yes, um, certified at eighty nine. Mm. Now I'm no expert again, but that sounds really synthy for me to be considering that yachty. I know a lot of people consider it yachty. Do you? I do. I consider it a super yachty. Really? Oh,
0: yeah. I. It doesn't take the drum machine and synth bass doesn't take it out for me. Simply the synth bass doesn't at all because I think it's played live. I don't think it's sequenced. Right. Okay. So it still has a live player vibe to it. The drum machine doesn't really, it's just playing a straight beat. It's not an essential part of the song. It's just the rest of the groove around it just jives for me in the melodic sense it feels very smooth. I yeah. I'm I okay would say that.
1: it jives for me. It's very smooth. I do not find yachtiness in it at all though, unfortunately. But I'm well, wrong. And what you're about, right.
0: Well, you like a good key change, right? Yeah. Well, let's jump ahead to 320. We can go back to whatever you got, but at 320, uh, they do this key change in the middle of a phrase in the middle of a chorus. Ooh. So they really put it in an odd spot. Check this out.
1: Well, maybe it is Yacht Rock. <laughs> Because that is a classic trope of the Yacht Rockers. Um, yeah, just when you think you've heard it all, whoops, there you go. Yeah. Well, it does have all the real horn guys in it again. So I guess, you know, I, I could be convinced. Uh, but put a pin in that. Ooh. Yes. Lots of pins going around. Yeah, it's like voodoo dolls for uh, yeah. you know Halloween. This is a Halloween episode. It's a good thing Don't we're in a know. boat, not a hot air balloon. <laughs> That's true. Although, how did we get to the Bermuda Triangle again? Boat? Air, air, yeah. Okay. Air, yeah. All right. Well. Now let's go even maybe a little more towards organic instrumentation to track 3, which is the F4 mentioned, The Girl Is Mine.
0: Yeah, with McCartney of course, written by Michael, 75.75 on the scale, and this was the actual the, the first song they even
1: recorded, not just released, but the first song they actually even recorded for the record. Really, and yeah. it's got the uh Pacaro on drums, yep. Steve Lukather on guitar, Phil and Gaines on keys. This is a song, going back to what I said at the beginning, that five years ago, you say, The Girl's Mine, oh, that's a Yacht Rock song. I would be like, what, what are you talking about? Of course, I'm being indoctrinated by Sirius, so mm-hmm. they would never play The Girl's Mine. Now, knowing what I know now, and now, even not, forget about the score for a minute, hearing the the groove in the palm mutes, I'm like, that is so yachty. I would give it higher than 89. I even. would, too, but, but they get... Uh 10 points knocked off
0: for spoken word section in the middle.
1: Is that an official ruling? Uh, yeah, well, Cause no. Because I'm about to change your mind. But I'm a lover, we, not a fighter, man. Before we get off this <laughs> song, so I awful. will change your mind on you that. Can't. You I can't. I will. It's awful. I will. I've got a little cheat code for you. Okay. All right? Want, while we're doing it, let's do it. The cheat code. All right. Here's how you get through that part. <laughs> now, you're going to play it. Will you go get a beer? No. Okay. You, st- you listen intently i just the Lewis Johnson bass part. Hit it. I'm a lover, not a fighter. Uh, I've heard it all before, Michael. She told me that I'm her forever lover, you know. Don't you remember? Well, after loving me, she says you couldn't love another. Is that what she said? Yes, she said it. You keep dreaming. I don't believe it. I've been saved. Yes. I've been saved. I told you. Oh, my God! Preach. Woo. Yep. All right. Now you can now you can stomach that song because you don't even have to hear the stupid that is the I'm still a story. lover, not a fighter. Yeah, well, I'm gonna be a fighter. <laughs> but a lover of this song now. Okay. It's so funny. I hated the song before. Yeah. <laughs> and now too. I love it.
0: <laughs> and I appreciate the the combo of Michael and McCartney. I think that that, that part of it works.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got some personnel question for you because okay. maybe you know the answer. I was just looking at Uh, assigning personnel to various tracks, and not like a, hey, here's who played what on every track. So same. I've got David Foster's on this tune, but so is David Page. And then I've got Lucifer on guitar, but also Dean Parks. I'm trying to figure out who's playing what and who's doing what. Do you know? Uh, I know
0: on the notes that I have is that Page is listed on piano and Foster on synthesizer. So I can answer that one. But in terms of the guitars, I couldn't tell you which one is...
1: Because remember we talked about the Palm Mutes. And we yeah. we went through Dean Parks, Jay Graydon, and Steve Lukather, and they all have their distinct styles. And I can't tell who's who on this one. I know
0: because that main Palm Mute part could eat, It falls into the strong points of both.
1: Yes, Parks and Lukather. Yep. But
0: something in me is telling me leaning
1: Parks. I don't I know me why. too, and I don't okay. know why. All right. But somebody uh educate us. Yeah. Um what else is I going to mention on this? I do have a little uh, piece of ear candy that I'm dying to share with you. All right. All right. I want to go back to the Rosanna episode. Mm, that's Remember a while we, back, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talked, we deconstructed all the various isolated tracks. Yeah. And there was a cool little drum fill in Rosanna where you're kind of coming out of the first chorus and then back into the second verse. Mm-hmm. And play that if you don't mind. Hey! Now, back to the girl's mind. A little turnaround up at 2 minutes and 45 seconds. It's not the exact same thing, but it is the exact same drummer. Tell me if this is a little bit reminiscent. Close. Even Picaro has his pet
0: fills. But that is, it's like the exact same fill as the intro to Rosanna as well.
1: Yep. Again, yachtier than you thought. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, shall we move on to the reason that we're here in the first place yes the reason for the season actually Yeah, Um, in the largest part it is like the reason for the season and that is closing side one with the classic Thriller now
0: this is another one I'm going to play that intro one more time notice how the drum fill coming out of it sounds different than the drum machine that plays in the groove So it makes me wonder, though, one of the things that's credited in terms of um, gear on, on this album is the emulator, which was a sampling keyboard, the synclavier, which was also a sampling keyboard, and then I wonder if Wendell was involved. But either way, those mm. drum sounds, that snare fill is entirely different than the sound of the rest of the
1: song. Interesting. It sounds like drum sample drum fill into drum machine. And I have a note here that Michael Jackson did the drum programming on this tune. right. So that's an interesting So he programs
0: assignment. the Lindrum or whatever it was the LM1. Yeah. Um, somewhere that drum fill came from somewhere else. So I like that.
1: Yes, interesting. Well, this uh my first note on this tune is David Williams strikes again. There it is. Yeah. Uh, I want to go just up to 115 again. I think it's in the left ear. It is. 115. Listen to the part that he's I've always heard this part, but I never really listened to this little muted guitar part. Let's uh hit it. You try to scream. Dave Williams, my new favorite. Has he dethroned uh, Dan Huff? Ooh, because he was your he was my new favorite until recently. But I agree with you. I got to hear more of his stuff. So the bass is credited as I believe both keyboard bass and real bass. Even Mm. though it sounds just like keyboard bass to me, is that's all I hear too? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was interesting. So that uh, if, if you don't know Rod Temperton is actually the writer of the song. Correct. Um, he wanted to call it Starlight or Midnight something. Man or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, But Thriller just kind of felt like it had more merchandising potential or whatever. And I think it was, uh, so then Quincy brings in Vincent Price. And for some reason, I always thought that Vincent wrote that monologue. I thought I read that somewhere too, that they gave him something and then he completely rewrote it. But, but I have a note here that Temperton wrote it in a taxi on the way to the recording studio and then handed it to him and Vincent did two takes and it was done. Yeah, that's a different lore than I had heard. Same. Um, What about the? So, just briefly on the video for this, because you brought. um, Did you bring up the video on this? Anyway, it's almost impossible to talk about about that. I have some notes on that. So, five hundred thousand dollar budget, which seems low actually, but I guess at the time was a pretty big deal. This is. Do you feel like this is the? or not the, but maybe a significant turning point in music videos where now we're telling these epic stories. You know, this was the one.
0: Yeah, because other people followed with these extended videos. Like I remember uh, uh, David Bowie's Blue Blue Jean Jean video became the next real big one. Um, But it's kind of funny that they actually booked a theater, um, ran the Thriller video in a theater in California just so it would qualify for an Oscar nomination. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. It obviously did not win, said Oscar. I don't know. I don't know. But then there's also the um, the movie Return of the Living Dead Part 2, like oh, 1988. Yeah. And there's a uh, zombie in there that's dressed like Michael Jackson. He's got the <laughs> jacket on and everything.
1: <laughs> I wanted that jacket so bad. Oh, I would have settled for the torn up one that he was a zombie. Absolutely. Um, that might even be better. Yep. And then do you know... Because we're talking audio tape. It just occurred to me. So, that extended version that they did for the music video, where it's this long thing and they've got the choreographed, uh, you know, huge zombie dance or whatever. What would they have done to like extend that loop? Would it have just been a tape thing that they had to run through? And, you know, any tricks well, there on were, that? There were two different ways that they were doing that back then.
0: In some cases, you were mixing it with vocals and then you'd create an instrumental so that later on you could cut in instrumental sections. Um, but also the other way, uh, cause I remember seeing an interview with Duran Duran and they talked about like when they were cutting Rio and hungry, like Wolf girls on film that they would cut cause they're playing, you know, real instruments. They would cut like a 10 minute version of that yeah, and then cut the actual final version down from there. Cause it was the drummer talking about how difficult the beat was. Not so much that for four
1: minutes, but to keep up the speed of what he had to do, like, on Girls on Film for 10 minutes. Oh, my God. And I know that bass part is very complex. And so to do that for 10 minutes. You can always punch that in. A lot harder to punch drums That's in true. You can punch it in. You know? But even, I mean, was it easy to punch stuff in back then? I guess. So there were two schools. Yeah. There was the, uh, you know, like I
0: said, mix it in instrumental and cut later or make the extended version and cut stuff down. That's what Prince did. He made his songs extra long, like, for Purple Rain. extended let's go crazy that's why we'd always have different stuff in there different guitar parts a piano solo whatever because he wrote it that long and
1: then cut it down from there so would you uh behoove yourself to if you're going to do that not the way Duran Duran did it, It actually use a drum machine with a sequencer so that everything is kind of, you know, everything stays on time, I and mean, then you, yeah. you locked it in. So when you got to make the cuts, it's a lot easier. So I'm sure Duran Duran was playing to a, a click too, because they had all that playing to a stuff. click. But that's different than a sequencer; just doing it for true. It. Yeah, true. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the end of side one. The
0: door slams on side one. Does it not? It Quite does. literally. Yes.
1: And then we start with side 2, a song that you may have heard of. Um which is interesting in its uh well just it's interesting in so many ways because of what they were trying to do with the song to get it on rock radio. But of course we're talking about Beat It. And that sound, that first of all that sound at the beginning, mm. that was like a it was a preset
0: standard sound in that synclavier that mm. came out then and super expensive keyboard not every studio had them and it was just one of those things where they were dialing through presets they hit that and go oh, this sounds so cool well, let's <laughs> use that and then forever going forward no one can ever use that sound anymore yeah. because it becomes so iconic that all you're doing is regurgitating beat
1: it but you know to it, be, you got to be first exactly well i like how this song starts aside from that it starts with what i'm going to describe as that casio keyboard kind of drums yeah, it's probably an eight hundred eight. Yeah, is it what is that Casio eight hundred eight or no? That would have been a uh, Roland eight hundred eight. so
0: I'm wondering if the demo was originally striped with that uh. all the
1: way down, and then they built on top of it. And listen to the stark difference though when the the bass and the guitar kicks in, and then the real drums kicks in. It just it takes it to a whole new depth.
0: Yeah, Picaro on drums.
1: Uh, um, Steve Lukather on guitar and bass, and
0: bass. Yep. He had to go and do this twice, as we covered when we talked. Uh, we did the Lukather book. Remember the first time he did it, he layered it like four times through his Marshall stacks and sent him this this thing to Quincy that was just blowing your your face off. <laughs> Quincy had to imagine. send it back and say, I like the idea, but can we dial back on the distortion a little bit? Because <laughs> he wants it to be on pop radio and that. And rock radio and-, and black
1: radio, as they called it at the time. Do you remember, did this song get play on rock radio in our market? Like was Riff playing it? Probably not. The only thing I would think Eddie Van Halen would justify an appearance on rock radio, even against, the, you know, amongst the burnouts, I bet they would accept it.
0: Supposedly, uh, Quincy Jones told a reporter, an interview he did for the Telegraph, London Telegraph, back, that um, he was inspired by My Sharona. Oh,
1: really? Supposedly, he wanted a black version of ah. that. Well... I know we've already gone over this, but I think if anyone hadn't listened to prior episodes, hadn't read the Steve Lukather book, it doesn't know the story about the Eddie Van Halen solo. Let's just cover that quickly. So I think it's interesting. So they decide that they're going to bring in Eddie Van Halen to do the solo. They sent him the tape. Yes. And say, go for it. And? Well, the solo section that they had
0: mapped out was just over one chord. It was just vamping that one chord, and they wanted him to just go nuts over that. Well, Eddie was not really inspired by that. He wanted there to be some more chord motion underneath that would lend him then to more melodic ideas or more stuff. So they took the tape that was sent to them, which had time code striped on it. And timecode is a linear digital track that allows other machines to read that timecode and synchronize with it. Mm-hmm. And once that gets code gets interrupted in any way, other machines can no longer sync to it. They just lose connection. Well... The, uh apparently Don Landy, who was the engineer working with Eddie Van Halen, said, uh, you know, Eddie, what do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to cut the verse section into the section where I'm supposed to play my solo. So they just cut the 24-track tape, Yeesh. thereby cutting the uh, sync track and to create the arrangement that, uh, that Eddie wanted to play over. So once they get that back to Quincy, now he's got a tape that has... Eddie's solo on it, supposedly for some strange reason, they say it had Michael's original lead vocal on it, which is, I don't understand why that would be. But now you got Eddie's solo, but it no longer lines up with any of the other stuff they already had because he had cut this synchronization. The one thing they used to sync things back up got cut. Even the master himself, Quincy,'s like, I don't know what to do. And who did he hand it off to? Luke? Luke. Yeah. yeah, Luke there. I think he said, You're. Go fix
1: this. Yeah, and Luke's like, what? What do I know about and it? And I think he calls Paige. He <laughs> calls Paige, <Yeah. laughs> What do we do? So somehow they figured out how to stitch it all back together, and it was yeah, brilliant. Well,
0: Jeff Porcaro got involved, and ah. they, they played down what they had, and Jeff listened in his ears and played a click track with like sticks.
1: Oh, That's right. So
0: the drums hadn't been recorded yet. So this is just probably that demo with the drum machine Ugh. and all that. So... So Jeff, in order to play drums, had to go through the whole thing, play a click track down with his sticks, so then he could go back and play along with the man-made click track that he had laid down. Oh, my So God. the whole thing got reverse-engineered based on Eddie's solo.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the Toto guys get far too little credit for saving that song, making that song, and everyone knows all about Eddie.
0: Oh, it's worse than that, because yeah, he w- Luke wasn't even uh, involved in the... Um,
1: one record of the year. Yeah. And he wasn't invited on stage on to stage accept the award. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't even
0: mentioned, apparently.
1: No, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, well, that's sort of the story of Toto's life, isn't it? It's like they're so underappreciated. Kind of sums it up. Yep. Yeah. Um, I wish I could go to an alternate universe and hear the version of the song wherein Steve Lukather did the guitar solo. Not that I don't like what Eddie did, but it's kind of cliche Eddie, you know, with some of the hammer-ons and all that yeah. stuff. Wouldn't that be cool? does it exist Can i don't know did he ever play one no that's an alternate okay. universe yeah. so we all we are I in see. the brebuta triangle we're halfway it's true. there all right well cool And that also had steve picaro on synth, so you're talking very toto and apparently paul jackson jr is credited on guitar also i noticed. like so i'm he he's in?
0: doing that other rhythm part that yeah
1: maybe i just hmm. perfectly nailed it on my little yeah, vocal i'm not even box. bother to play a little bit of it
0: <laughs> all right i will
1: Right. That's that a little better, better yeah, than what yeah. I do. Okay. All right. Well, huge mega hit. And then that gets us to the other, not the other, but another huge mega hit. The one that drew me in, and that is Billy Jean.
0: Song that was mixed 91 times. Wow. According to Bruce, uh, I always said it was Bruce Swedeen, but I've heard it pronounced another way. Swedeen or something like that. He says that he mixed it 91 times, and at some point... I tell you, if anybody that, that's worked in the audio production world is listening to this, you're going to appreciate this. Quincy goes back and says, let's listen back to mix number two. Oh, no. <laughs> and they listened to it, and it was perfect. Oh, jeez. And here they are on mix
1: 91. So <laughs> well, what you're hearing on the record is mix number two. That, what's hilarious about that is I did not know all that story. I just wrote sonically perfect. Like, for the time this song came out, it sounded like nothing I had ever heard, and it was just like, oh, my God, this is perfect. It's a fairly simple song. Very really. simple. But Man. I think that simplicity gives you the space. Again, going back to li- listen to all Michael's hehees and whoa whoas and ha-ha. Yeah, this one has more of that than any other song. <laughs> They're coming from all over the all place. All over the place, boy. <laughs> Did, didn't you, was you tell me that you read somewhere that, um, or maybe somebody told us, that Quincy would line up 12 mics in a row? I think it was an interview with Bruce Swedeen that, I, that said okay. that. Okay, yeah. What was that? That
0: part of their... They, it was a sort of a twofold thing. They like to use different mics in order to get different sonic uh, fingerprints. And also, Michael liked this sort of flow of... He would apparently be able to imagine the whole thing in his head when it came time to do the vocals. And he wanted to have this thing where I would stand in front of this mic and I would sing this part top to bottom. Then you rewind, I go over to the next mic and I sing the next part top to bottom. <laughs> And he would go through all 12 mics or however many they had lined up in order to create what we're hearing on this with all the little Bs and uhs and all that stuff.
1: <laughs> that was all hey, done. Wait, where did that one come that from? Wow. <laughs> we
0: well, I guess we did get the solo tracks yeah. on that. Sounded just like it. But uh, that's how how they did that. And so you can hear, going back to why you want to listen on headphones, is that you can hear him doing those little noises, those E's and B's and, B's and, B's and all that stuff. And then when he gets to the chorus, all those voices start singing harmony.
1: They're coming at you from every which yeah. way. It's so cool. Um, yeah, just the feel of this. Again, going back to the second mix was perfect. Why did they keep going? The feel I thought was accentuated or complemented perfectly by the feel of the video. You go back and look at it now, mm-hmm. and it's kinda silly, mm-hmm. maybe cheesy. But that video just kinda had that same sort of coldness to it or something that was part of the uh, thematically the song and the sound of the song um but i remember the video is i would obsess with remember he was he would be stepping on those cement blocks and yeah. they'd like, i would obsess over it because he would step on one and it wouldn't light up I'd yeah be like, no it's not yeah. perfect They're faking it. <laughs> <laughs> go back there's a little fun yeah. task for you
0: it's amazing how much a song can groove with a straight drum beat and a pretty much a straight eighth note pattern bass part. Yeah. Now granted right. it's going up and down the scale and it's being accented certain ways, but it's not
1: overly complicated yet it's an amazing groove. I always presumed that yeah, I agree with you. I presumed the bass to be synth because it's so robotic. Apparently it's both. Oh it is both because yeah the bassist uh, Lewis Johnson did, did not use his music man. He did a, a Yamaha bass like maybe to get a completely mm. synthy sounding tone out of it but I can kind of hear both layers now that you mention that. Daryl Hall
0: says that um, Michael Jackson approached him at the we are the world recording and sort of told him that yeah I cribbed the baseline for that from uh, I can't go for that no can do
1: really uh-huh. oh, wow <laughs> interesting little confessional there yeah yeah um I gotta credit our new favorite uh our, our new uh what is it uh fanboy we are fanboys of this David, I said that perfectly. Anyway, here's David Williams at mile marker 330 doing his thing. And then listen again at 404.
0: Funny, the note I was looking at only had uh, Dean Parks listed on guitar, but I I would agree agree with you. I don't know where you got your notes, but that sounds a lot more like what I've come to know David Williams to do. Yeah, than me Dean too. Parks.
1: And I think I'm being blinded by the fact that it was panned hard to one side too. It's like I'm like, <laughs> oh, that, that's where David Williams' yeah, stuff that's was. where He was standing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. That, I just, I that's a song I never get sick of. I've heard it a billion times. Um, there's just something they accomplish something, a mood, a feel, a yeah. vibe. I don't know. Yep. All right, well, we have to move off of it eventually, because we got to get through the rest of the record. Controversy uh, time. Yes, because we are talking about a song that earned a 95.5 on the Yatsky scale. And that song is... You say it. Human nature. <laughs> Neither of us really agree that it uh, belongs that high. No, other than the fact that uh, Luke's palm mutes are absolutely sublime. That's about all I hear in this one. Yeah, you could, you,
0: you could say who the personnel is, but it's still... So reliant on programmed straight drums, programmed arpeggiated synths and stuff. Um, whatever. That, 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 that's beside the point. But uh, it's an interesting story how this song actually got discovered. It has to do with, uh, Page was working fairly closely with Quincy and putting together demos. Quincy's still looking for material. David Page is sending him demos. And somehow he was getting... Help from uh, Steve Percaro to burn some of this stuff to cassette for him and and send it off. And um, they'd run out of blank cassettes. So Steve Percaro used one of his old cassettes and just recorded over it, put two songs on there. And when the second song ran out, apparently Quincy wasn't thrilled with either of them. All of a sudden, Human Nature starts playing, because that's what was on this.
1: That's what it had been recorded over.
0: (laughs) It had been recorded over,
1: and that was the song he wanted. Interesting. Well, it ended up being a big hit. I mean... Yeah, do you think it would have been a big hit if Toto recorded it? Ooh, I bet I would have liked it a lot more. think so? Uh, I wonder what that would have sounded like, because obviously then it wouldn't have had Quincy. That's true. It's almost too soft for Toto, even... But maybe that, I'm being blinded by this version. So mm-hmm. I never really liked the song. I hate to say it. I don't know how you feel about it. I like some of the stuff that the Total Cats are doing yeah. on it. I appreciate it more than I used
0: to, but this was not my favorite
1: of yeah. the record for sure. Well, I guess we don't know. Although this one was also, there's a couple songs that were engineered by uh, that Umberto, is it Gatika? Yep. And man, his stuff, the whole record sounds amazing, but I feel like his stuff even stands out as even more crisp and lush and beautiful. He did Chicago 17. There you go. And <laughs> back to that. <laughs> uh yes. he met a certain evil. Hey, it's Halloween. Should we talk about evil David Foster? No, okay. It, yeah. All right, well then let's move on to a pretty young thing. PYT. You know, you you made me feel so good inside. I've always wanted a girl just like you. You're such a PYT.
0: I had no idea until I dove in specifically for this episode that this song has relatively a completely different set of personnel and minds behind it. I had no idea that this was such a James Ingram heavy track. Yeah. That was new to me. I didn't know that either. Co-written with
1: Quincy. Yep. And who are the personnel? So it's got that chancellor, Indugo Chancellor on drums again, right? Yeah and we've got um a, now here's the
0: one that we're why we were putting a pin in it um we do have Louis Johnson Louis Johnson credited as on electric bass and we'll get to that oh, Paul yes, Jackson we will. Jr but we got James Ingram on keys Aha. on the Porta Sound which is a tiny little like battery operated keyboard kind of like the size of the CZ 101 a oh, little yeah.
1: laptop kind of computer um is that where they put the bass? Because you don't get any synthier than this synth bass. <laughs> it is synth. But then we get to the bridge section, and suddenly it's Lewis Johnson bass solo time. It's the best part of the whole song. Let's just go there. Because it's another one of the things that a 12-year-old Tom Nixon could never appreciate. And I don't even know if I really appreciated it until just this week, when you hear all the slapping and popping from Lewis under this part that you were like, Oh, I was listening to the PYT part the whole time. Let's hit it.
0: And really up until that point, you don't hear anything that that points to
1: real bass. No, I think that he just comes in for that part. And then part.
0: it disappears again. And what I learned recently watching this video about the bass part on Gimme the Night from George Benson is that it was common for Quincy to record bass and synth bass both top to bottom on a song and then decide at mix time which he wants to use where. Ah. So it it was a good chance that Lewis played the whole tune and they only brought him
1: up there and brought the synth bass out. I would love to hear that. You know, just a real quick as a bass player who loves slap bass, why throughout history are they always trying to like downplay or hide synth or slap bass, I mean? It's like we we talked about um, in Peg. Yeah. Yeah, like He had to like hide that he was slapping it. Otherwise, they would have told him you can't use that track. Um, I remember in the, like the 90s, like when uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Flea stopped slapping and popping because it wasn't considered cool. And now you've got this where it's like you've got the slap bass in there, but it's mixed so low you can barely even hear it. It's like, it's like this pariah that is such this gorgeous little thing. I don't know why yeah, it that be disqualified. I mean,
0: I know that, that when um, Chuck Rainey talked about that with Peg, is that the guys, Fagan and Becker, thought it, by that point, the slap bass thing had become cliche yeah okay but that doesn't explain like you say flea and these other incidences so. yeah
1: exactly it's, it's always considered cliche yeah i don't know interesting i do have a theory i don't know if it's uh podcast worthy oh boy do you remember the comedian that um made fun of porn music and it was always boom, bang, bang, <laughs> brown chicken brown cow <laughs> Yeah. 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 <laughs> i feel like that's what gave it its bad name Maybe. anyways Moving right along. Um, Did we talk about Janet Jackson and LaToya being on backup vocals? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So again, that's something that's different from the rest of the record. Yep. Only place that they appear.
0: Any of the Jacksons,
1: other than Michael. Well, I'm about to unpin my pin, but it wasn't on this PYT song. All right. Well, unpin your pin. All right. We're going going to the final track. Another Rod Temperton joint, uh, meaning he wrote it. And that is The Lady in My Life. So let's just hit... Here's here's my comment, my pin unpinned, is that if you want yacht rock out of Michael Jackson record, this is the song for you. Now here's it starts out like this. Very ballady, but to me yeah. it's got this baby come to me vibe. Yeah. Well, who sang Baby Come to Me? That would be James Ingram, sir. Who wrote Baby Come to Me? I believe that would be James Ingram, sir. No, Rod, Rod Temperton, Temperton. Yes.
0: Sir. That would be Rod Temperton, sir. Sir, yes.
1: I don't know who produced, but did Quincy produce? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like this is a Yacht Rock. If Baby Come To Me is a Yacht Rock song, this is a Yacht Rock song, even though it's ballady. Yeah, it starts off um but it does
0: have more of a groove, more of a pulse than I really remembered. I remember this as just being the quiet
1: ender of the album. But me too. There's more going on there. Well, let's fast forward real quick to one minute thirty seconds, and tell yep. me this isn't starting to descend into yacht rock.
0: Yeah, it does. It gets Yachty there for a minute, and then if we fast forward to three minutes, <laughs> we get the full-on pop and bass from Lewis Johnson added in. Yeah, well, I had
1: down there still not convinced. Let's go to 248. All right. So here we go.
0: should have had this one on our um our yacht ballads the the no wake
1: zone list it (laughs) should have been on there i totally forgot about the song yeah Yeah. because i at the time like you said i dismissed it i got to this song at the end i'm like i'm kind of tired of this but i didn't know then what i know now and i just going back to that so i talked about uh, lewis's sound on um uh billy jean he played that yamaha this is he's playing his music band. there's Definitely. no question like yeah. this is the sound that as a bass player i'm going for it i know what you might be thinking which would be then if you want to sound like lewis why don't you start playing like lewis right to which i would respond shut your stupid face and that would be the end of that you might want to save that for the end of the episode okay <laughs> all right uh, well shut your stupid face no there's a different thing to, uh, okay. the episode. that's right shut um, your stupid face <laughs> but i it's also got filling gains yeah. on the roads yeah and I'm hearing some Babylon Sisters. It's got a slow fade, like the Yacht Rock Elms. Mm-hmm. It's got almost everything you'd ever want in a Yacht Rock tune. But yet this song isn't even mentioned. No. That's I wonder, wonder if they, obviously the guys aren't scoring tunes, but I wonder yeah. what they would give us. I would I love do. to hear that. Well, there's the album. Uh, Again, that slow fade is like, that's how you end a Yacht Rock album. It is. All right. Well, anything else? Or should we go into the lightning round? I think it's probably about that time.
0: All right, lightning round. This is going to be the uh, express lightning round.
1: You go first. We'll put the lightning in lightning round. So in honor of this being a Halloween episode, I had to play a song that is... uh, Probably not, yeah. So you hear, I'll just tell you the song first, Games People Play by Alan Parsons Project. Mm -hmm. You hear that song in your head and you're like, there's no way that's yachty at all. Correct. But give it a little listen. and It's surprising how there's a variation of a bounce and it's just a little closer to the boat than you thought. Games People
0: Play kind of in the area of Santana's Hold On. I know I've yes. used that before, but it's kind of in
1: that it area. It is. It's like, you know it's not Yacht Rock, but you're surprised that it's, it fits so well. So maybe this should be off the map. Anyway, right. it's by Does It Float Your Boat? And that is a no from you. That's correct. That is going on my Halloween on the Yacht playlist, though, because you got to listen to We don't have time to do it. But go to the two-minute mark. Listen to how spooky it gets in there. Where <laughs> people are playing games in the middle of the night. Oh, That's my Halloween. gosh. All right. There you go. What do you got?
0: Well, I uh, all three of mine are off the map. I decided to, uh, since we're taking a diversion through the Bermuda Triangle, I'm going to take a diversion and go three off-the-map selections. And one, the first part is honoring sort of, there was that whole period there, as I alluded to earlier, where Michael and McCartney were working closely together. So we had The, the Girl Is Mine. Um, they did Say, 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 yep. which was on the Pipes of Peace album. But apparently that was recorded Pipes of Peace was 1983. It was recorded in like early 1981. It was intended for the Tug of War album, which was 1982. Mm. But so this would have been done around the same time that they were working on the Girl Is Mine. They also uh, on the London Town album, Wings did Girlfriend, which was a Michael Jackson song that, that or Michael Jackson did on the Off the Wall album. Uh, but here's one that I I forgot that I forgot, and this is a, another one with Michael and McCartney off of McCartney's Pipes of Peace album called The Man. Anyway, so that's a good one. I know that, uh, it, I don't know if it was released as a single, but radio was kind of trying to play anything they could find that had Michael on it at the time. Well,
1: they were really going for that crossover thing back then, yeah. weren't they? Because the, also, the same year as Thriller, by the way, was uh, Ebony and Ivory with McCartney and Stevie Wonder. Like, yeah. That was a thing. Yep. All right. So that's one buried treasure. All right. No, that's well, off the map. Here's off the map, okay. off the map of a number treasure. two. All
0: right. Since we're talking Halloween and Michael Jackson. I guess a a song about a little bit of uh, paranoia probably fits in. Remember Rockwell? Oh yeah! Somebody's watching me from 1984.
1: Should I put that on my Halloween on the Yacht playlist? Oh, it's, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. so not yachty. Somehow Rockwell was related to Barry Gordy from Motown really? Records, and that's how he got the, the record deal. It's actually a good record. It is, really it is. is. Yeah. I love that tune. Michael's yeah. cameo on It's really nice. Yep. All right. Well, I'm going to do this properly. My buried <laughs> treasure is the aforementioned Lady in My Life, because I had totally forgotten about it, and I totally think it's Yacht Rock. So let's go back to 2 minutes, 48 seconds, and hear a little more Yacht Rock from Michael Jackson. Go nowhere Let me, let me, let me give you one. Give one. Oh, lady, my lady. Oh. I baby. <laughs> All right. Now you get to the uh, off the map. Alright. Um, my off the map is Sade. And it's not Smooth Operator, which the guys from Yacht Rock, Miami suggested. And at the time, I'm like, nah, nah, it doesn't float my boat at all. I think now, knowing what I know now, I might say yes. But this is not that. This is what um, Spotify told me was relevant to Thriller once I ran through that album. From the 1988 album Stronger Than Pride, here is a tune that features electric piano in the year 1988. Mm. Uh, Some slap bass with some synth accent bass in there. Palm Mutes feature prominently. This is like... This is a Michael Jackson joint but this is uh nothing can come between us off the map but sonically it's relevant to
0: today I think. relative to today is in today's episode not today culturally. I would elite. say both okay all right yes well I have one more off the map if you can okay. imagine. Um, this song requires probably no further setup than just to give you the title and how it ties in. This is The Hooters doing all you zombies. <laughs>
1: That, yes. That one is not going yeah. on my Halloween on the Yacht playlist, but it is on my Halloween playlist. It ought to be. Yes, yes for oh, sure. sure. Yeah. So, all right. Well, that's so it. So, next year, are yes. we going to do what? Like an Alice Cooper album? Or Ooh, we could. Kill, oh, yeah. Megadeth. <laughs> I don't know. Meatloaf. <laughs> are any of these Yachty? Uh, I think no, you got to uh, have Halloween. At least th- Halloween. Oh, they're Halloween y. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, you got to have at least three certified songs to be uh, on the Yacht Rock playlist. Oh, I don't think either of these, any of these. That, no. No. All right. right, Sorry. Okay. Well, that's it. You know what that means.